0: Tonight's topic is the topic of conversion, topic of conversion. Last week, we studied the doctrine of regeneration, and these two things are very closely intertwined, as we will see this evening. But it does deserve reminder, what is regeneration? We need to understand again, as as we review and reflect upon our study last Wednesday night, that regeneration is a sovereign act of God by the Holy Spirit and through the preached gospel, whereby he instantaneously imparts spiritual life to a sinner, bringing him, that is the sinner, out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. Now, that is a definition from biblical doctrine from MacArthur and Mayhew's book on biblical doctrine, and we reviewed that last week as we studied the doctrine of regeneration, and we defined regeneration as the impartation of new life where there was none before. And to remind us, we we looked at the fact that regeneration is God's response to total depravity. Total depravity is the permeation of sin into all that we are. It's the Rendering dead of a man's spiritual abilities, it makes man unable to do anything truly pleasing to God. Total depravity does not make a sinner as bad as he could be, but it certainly renders him unable to do that which pleases God, to do that which is pure, to do that which is truly righteous. Regeneration is what God does in response to total depravity. It is to breathe life into a dead sinner it is to raise him from spiritual death it's the concept of resurrection applied spiritually to us now we also mentioned that regeneration is such a profound event that it actually happens to us below the level of consciousness you're going to say well i I did feel something at the moment of my salvation And, and your answer is correct you did you must But what you felt, what you experienced wasn't regeneration, it was the effect of regeneration. Regeneration is that act of God that takes place at the very core of our being, even below our level of consciousness, to give us new life. And you can liken it to this, that when you think back to your birth, you don't remember anything. You didn't, you didn't, you weren't conscious really of what was happening at at your birth. But the effects of your birth brought a consciousness to it. And that's what we see in the giving of spiritual life. The sovereign act of God, whereby God, whereby he makes us alive through the preaching of the gospel, breathes into us life, makes us a new creation. And it is this act, this unilateral act, what we call a monergistic act of God, whereby God acts wholly on on His part without any partnership, without any contribution from us, purely according to His great mercy, He begins to apply redemption's benefits to us. And the first act that does this in a dramatic way is regeneration. And this regeneration efficaciously produces what we call conversion. Conversion. And conversion, as we look at the whole plan of salvation from eternity past to eternity futures, we look at that process that goes all the way back into, to, to eternity past before the beginning of time when God chooses those who he will shed, uh, who, who he will Uh, shed his love upon, and and then in time as he sends forth his son and accomplishes the atonement at the cross, and then in relative time as he begins to work within us, those whom he has elected, conversion in that entire process is, is the first thing that we consciously feel. Conversion is that first component where we exercise something where we become aware of what is going on in that spiritual realm by way of summary again as I've mentioned this already when we think of a survey of salvation we talk about its arrangement before time we talk about its accomplishment at the cross and we talk about its application in relative time to each individual believer In its arrangement before time, we discussed the doctrine of election. In its accomplishment at the cross, we talked about the atonement and those two aspects of of one being propitiation and what the atonement accomplished with respect to God and the other being redemption, uh, the part of the atonement that is applied to, to specific individual sinners. And then when we talk about the application of the atonement to our lives we began by talking about calling and then last week regeneration and when we talk about regeneration we're talking about what it produces tonight that being conversion and as we will define it conversion is going to be defined as being repentance and faith repentance and faith and I've highlighted this here in a different color, and you can't see it, and I apologize for that. The idea here is that repentance and faith are gifts to us, but they are things we exercise, and we'll talk about it tonight. When we talk about key terms and definitions for this part of our study, we want to focus on one word tonight, and it's the word conversion. Conversion. We want to make sure that we define this word appropriately, correctly, according to Scripture. So what does conversion mean? What does conversion mean? Let me start off with a fairly simple definition by Wayne Grudem. He says this, conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call, in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. So as I said, conversion is the first component in this process of of salvation from eternity past to eternity future. Conversion is now where we become conscious of redemption's application to us. Millard Erickson has defined it with a little more detail. He said this about conversion. Conversion is a single entity that has two distinguishable but inseparable aspects. Repentance and faith. Repentance is the unbelievers turning away from sin, and faith is his or her turning to Christ. They are, respectively, the negative and positive aspects of the same occurrence. Now, let me define that or provide a definition that's even fuller than that. So, we go from that simple definition by by Grudem... Our willing response by which we repent and believe in Christ. A little bit fuller response given by Erickson. And this is what MacArthur and Mayhew write in the book, Biblical Doctrine. As God shines the light of regeneration into the sinner's heart, he opens a man's spiritual eyes so that he can see the bankruptcy of sin and the worthiness of Christ who is perfectly suited to forgive our sins and provide the righteousness we need for eternal life, finally furnished with the ability to perceive reality as it is, the newborn soul necessarily and immediately turns away in revulsion from sin and eagerly turns to embrace Christ. This is conversion. And this is what true regeneration Produces. We don't feel regeneration, but we feel its effects. We're not conscious of the, the workings of regeneration in our life in and of themselves, but we are certainly conscious of what regeneration produces. As MacArthur and Mayhew so well define here, it is the opening of the eyes so that we finally begin to see In reality, and and those of you who are in Christ, you know this. For the first time, you begin to see the truths of Scripture and they make sense. For the first time, you begin to see that sin is ugly. For the first time, you begin to see that your path in this life is hopeless. For the first time, you begin to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. For the first time... You have longings and desires that you've never experienced before. Conversion is the felt effect of regeneration. One text that particularly describes this well is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul, in this epistle of 1 Thessalonians, spends the entire first chapter recounting the conversion of the Thessalonians. And as he reaches the climax, at the end of this Thanksgiving section, at the end of chapter 1, he says these words in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. He says, for they themselves, he's speaking about other believers, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. And then he says this about their conversion, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. This was the conversion of the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians, as most pagans, heathens in the Greco-Roman Empire, they were part of the polytheistic system, and in those days, there's no separation of church and state, no separation of the secular from the religious, all those kinds of things, and their lives were filled with all kinds of activities in the workplace, activities in the civic arena, with all kinds of idolatry, participation in all of the religious activities of all the gods and goddesses of the Roman pantheon. When Paul came preaching the gospel, that gospel made an impact. It, it, the gospel, through God's regenerating work, made an impact, and there was a felt effect. What happened? They turned. And notice how he describes it. He says, they turned to God from idols. That is the summary of conversion. A turn from and a turn to. and this concept of conversion doesn't just relate to pagans doesn't just relate to the Gentiles in Paul's letters he also uses it to refer to the Jews and so for example in 2 Corinthians 3.16 he says this but to this day whenever Moses is read a veil lies over their heart he is referring to the Jews who cannot see Their eyes do not work. They are totally depraved. They cannot make sense of reality as God has determined it. Their eyes are veiled. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, Paul says, the veil is taken away. Same verb that's used there, the turn to the Lord. And that turn implies a turn away from something else, which in the case of the Jews was a turn away from self-righteousness. And a turn to the Lord. In Acts 3 verse 19. Peter preaches to a whole crowd of, of Jews. And he says this. Therefore repent and return. Turn towards. The Lord is implied there. Repent and return. So that your sins may be wiped away. In Acts 11 verse 21. We read of the same verb of turning. Used to describe a mass of conversion event that was happening in the city of syrian antioch where large numbers were coming to the lord and we read luke luke's words as he says this in acts 11 verse 21 and the hand of the lord was with them those who were preaching the gospel preaching the testimony that jesus is the messiah that he atoned for sin and a large number who believed turned to the lord that's conversion Acts 14, verse 15, Paul and Barnabas are in the city of Lystra, a very pagan superstitious city, and they perform a miracle, and the inhabitants of the city believe that one of them is Zeus, and and one of them is Hermes, these Greek gods. They're so superstitious. They have no background in, in the God of the Old Testament, they just think it's part of the Roman pantheon. And Paul responds by saying this to them when they begin to try and worship Paul and Barnabas. They say, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you so that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. That's conversion. The conscious felt Exercise of a turn away and a turn towards. It's often in the New Testament expressed by this Greek word epistrepho. Which means to change one's mind or course of action. To turn back or to return or to turn around. It has the idea of being on a path, a course, a road. And something happens so that you change your direction. You are going in one way in thought and action and lifestyle, and something happens to definitively change the direction. Now note this about conversion, and this is very important the verb epistrepho and 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 some of the, the, the synonymous ideas of conversion that are used in the scriptures do not communicate the idea that it's just an addition. Conversion is not an addition. Conversion is not just merely a modification of some problems that are in your life or uh, some weaknesses that you may have noticed in your life. Conversion is not modification. Conversion is not improving, applying some steps to make you a better you. Conversion is not adaptation, it's also not enlightenment in the sense that you you just need to know a little bit more and then use that knowledge to make your life better. Those things are not conversions. In fact, we could say this, conversion is also not just merely a decision where you just decide, I'm going to do something, I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to walk the aisle, I'm going to put up the hand. That's not the biblical picture of conversion. Conversion is a turn from and a turn towards. It is a change of spiritual orientation. It's a change of spiritual orientation that recognizes that one's current direction is fundamentally vain. It's futile. It's reproachable. It's ugly. And that a different direction is irresistibly compelling and inherently glorious. That's what regeneration, when it is truly present, that's what it produces. A view of the things of this world as vain, empty idols. Inherently ugly, reproachable, despicable, and a recognition that there is a different way. One that is inherently glorious, one that is irresistibly compelling. And conversion is that moment when you stop going down the path that you were, you renounce that old path, and you start in a new direction. One commentator Leon Morris commentating on that passage in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 that spoke of the Thessalonians' turn from idols to God. He defines it this way. He says, becoming a Christian involves a very definite break with non-Christian habits. Whatever the believer's previous background, there must always be a turning from idols of some sort. The act of conversion involves a change of direction of the will." This is a decisive happening, a a reorientation of the whole life. There was no such attempt, no attempt to to find a place for Christ in the polytheistic milieu of those Thessalonians. They weren't just adding Christ, adding him as, as one of the many gods of their pantheon. Such an idea was preposterous. No matter how greatly their habitual practices had to be changed, the Christians of the first century saw that there could be no place for an idol alongside of Christ. That's conversion. So as we look at conversion, we can think of it in this way. It has a twofold aspect. It includes a turn away from something. A turn away from the life of of total depravity and all that was engaged in in that old lifestyle of deadness. And that turn away is is summarized by repentance. And we're going to look at repentance when we come back in January. So I'm not going to get too much in defining repentance in in any great detail. But repentance is, is that change of direction away from things away from idols, away from sin, Satan, and self-righteousness. On the other side, it is a turn toward. This is faith. This is the positive aspect. This is the, uh, the, the clinging to that new path. The clinging to those new promises. To all that that new road has to offer. And Before we go in and look at the essential characteristics, I'm going to take a moment to recommend a book that I would strongly encourage you to read in light of our study tonight. It's a Puritan work called A Sure Guide to Heaven, written by a pastor by the name of Joseph A. Line. In fact, what's so important about this book is really represented by the title it used to have. When it was first penned, it was called An Alarm to unconverted sinners. Joseph Aeline was deeply concerned about his congregation, about those he ministered to. He was deeply concerned over the fact that there was misunderstanding about the nature of conversion, and that in his church and in many other churches, there were whole hosts of unconverted professing Christians. And this book, and I'll make reference to it as we continue. Provides a very detailed treatment of conversion as it relates to things such as the nature of true conversion, characteristics of false conversion, the motives of true conversion, the necessity of true conversion, the nature of true conversion, the marks of the unconverted, the miseries of the unconverted, and directions to the unconverted. A Sure Guide to Heaven, a little Puritan paperback, strongly recommended as one of the best books you'll read on the topic of conversion. Well let's look at some essential characteristics now. When we talk about this concept of conversion. And evaluate the scriptural teaching. And systematize what we see in scripture about conversion. I want you to notice six characteristics. About the nature of biblical conversion. Number one. We've referenced it already. Conversion is the effect of regeneration. Conversion is the effect of regeneration. It is regeneration, that supernatural transformation that takes place at the core of our being that causes conversion. It's not the other way around. It's not that conversion. It's not our faith and repentance that creates new life. And it's very important to see this because in a dead sinner's Life. There is no capacity to produce faith and true repentance. He is, the sinner is dead in his trespasses and sins. He does not seek God, he does not do what is good. Apart from regeneration, he does not have the capacity to make that turn away from idols in any true sense. And make that turn towards God as the only true and living God in any true sense. He may turn away from idols. He may turn away from sins. But that's just self-righteousness. That's just replacing some idols with other idols. That's what the unbeliever does. But it is regeneration which enables this exercise of faith and repentance. We see this, for example, in Acts 16, verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. She was a Gentile. She was from among the heathen, but she was a proselyte. She was a proselyte to Judaism. So she started to associate, as a Gentile woman, began associating with Jews, recognizing that the God of the Israelites, the God of the Jews, was the one true God. She had come to that recognition. And so she was among the, the Jews. And there were many of these proselytes in that day. And many of them never responded to Paul's preaching of the gospel. But notice how what, what, what happens in Lydia's life. Luke describes it this way. As she was listening... Notice what happened. The Lord opened her heart. We would say that is regeneration. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord gave her eyes to see, ears to hear. And notice what happens as an effect, as a consequence. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Conversion is the response. Conversion is what we do when we are drawn irresistibly, lovingly, powerfully to the truths of the gospel. We do respond, and without a response, there is no regeneration. If there is no response, it indicates regeneration has not taken place. But where regeneration takes place, it efficaciously, inevitably results in the response, and we certainly feel and participate in this response. And it's important to recognize this because if we don't, we will place a human act in our deadness as being the cause of new life. And that brings all kinds of dangerous implications to the understanding of ourselves and our capacity in our sinfulness. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says as he defined this. Notice how he explains this in terms of cause and effect. He says this, Conversion is the first exercise of the new nature. Conversion is the first exercise of the new nature in ceasing from old forms of life and starting a new life. It is the first action of the regenerate soul in moving something to something. You could liken it to this. As a baby is brought out of the womb, you can make the analogy that conversion is the first breath. Now, that baby has been conceived and gestated and delivered, but that baby must breathe. And once it has been born, it comes out of the womb, the the baby breathes. That is like our conversion. We have been birthed spiritually, and conversion is our first breath. And it is an amazing one. We talked about this last time. When we look at salvation in terms of chronology, we don't see a difference. These two things do happen simultaneously. Regeneration and conversion they happen at the same time. One we feel, the other we don't. But they're occurring simultaneously. That's according to chronology. But according to causation, we must look at it this way. That it is regeneration which causes conversion. The two are distinguishable. One is a cause, the other is an effect. And though they are occurring simultaneously, it is one that produces the other. It is a divine supernatural act that produces the human response. And it is so very important to get those in the right order. That's number one, conversion. Conversion is a sovereign act of Of God that is caused by regeneration number two conversion includes both repentance and faith it includes both repentance and faith and we're going to get into this more and once we get to January these two components need to be defined very carefully we'll define them later but we already can say this that repentance is the renunciation of the idol's Faith is the trust in God, the the affirmation that he He is inherently and exceedingly glorious. These two things must occur. Certainly, in the history of the church, there have been those who have sought to divide these two things to suggest that only faith is necessary, but that you can continue on the path towards idols and still be saved. That is not the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching... Defines conversion as a turn away at turn two, epistrepho. Now, on the one hand, these two things, faith and repentance, are so closely intertwined that they're often expressed in the very same context. And sometimes even interchangeably. Sometimes you'll hear that, they, that, that, that someone who was converted repented. Other times that they believed, and at other times they repented and believed. They're so closely intertwined, it's hard to separate them, but they are different things. But it's important to, to recognize that it is impossible to turn to God without turning away from some other thing. We could look at it like this. Conversion is like a coin. Repentance is on one side of the coin. It is that turn from sin, self, self-righteousness, and Satan Faith is the turn to God in belief that he and he alone can save, and you can never have a one-sided coin. Both are present. I like what A.W. Pink says as he defines repentance and faith. He says this, Repentance is the hand releasing those filthy objects it had previously clung to so tenaciously. Faith is extending an empty hand to God to receive his gift of grace. Repentance is a godly sorrow for sin. Faith is receiving a sinner's savior. Repentance is revulsion of the filth and pollution of sin. Faith is a seeking of cleansing therefrom. Repentance is the sinner covering his mouth and crying, unclean, unclean. Faith is the leper coming to Christ and saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Number three, conversion has no fixed pattern. The way in which regeneration affects conversion in a sinner is unique to each individual. It's unique in its timing. It's unique in its process. It's even unique in some of the things felt. And we see this just by comparing the conversion accounts that we see. We could look, for example, in the Old Testament and see the conversion accounts of Naaman and Manasseh, Nebuchadnezzar, and the inhabitants of Nineveh. And they all have different circumstances. In the New Testament, we could look at the conversion of Zacchaeus, the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, the conversion of Paul, the conversion of Cornelius, Lydia, and the Philippian jailer. They all have different circumstances. And this uniqueness is important. And it's important for us not to try and put conversion into too tight of a box. Yes, it must have the components of, of, of repentance and faith. However, the circumstances in which those things are expressed and exercised is going to be unique to, to every single believer. And that uniqueness is due to the fact as we've noted already that, that God's grace is irresistible, but it's not irresistible in the sense that he forces us to do things contrary to our will, but God in that irresistible grace so condescends to the, the one he chooses to save, that he orchestrates all the details all the circumstances in such a way as to wooingly draw that sinner irresistibly, so lovingly that there is no force involved whatsoever. The uniqueness testifies to God's special act in each individual sinner whom he desires to save. One theologian, Anthony Hokuma, said this, To set up the same pattern for everyone is highly dangerous and contrary to Scripture. Stop there for just a moment. What he's pointing to is the fact that sometimes in our efforts to prescribe certain tests of salvation, we're going to get to that in just a moment, but sometimes in our effort to prescribe certain tests, we come up with a very strict set of steps, boxes to check, because that's what has happened in our life. And we say, well, that's what conversion must look like in everyone else's life. And so it's got to be this particular way in this amount of time. In this kind of consciousness and so on and so forth. But as I said, we don't see that in scripture. We see variations of conversion. But as Hokuma says, to set up the same pattern for everyone is highly dangerous and contrary to scripture. What is most important about a conversion is not the way in which it occurs or even the time at which it occurs, but it's genuineness. If one is going in the wrong direction, it is immaterial whether he or she now now makes a U-turn or goes around several blocks. The thing that matters is whether in the end he or she is going in the right direction. And that gives us confidence. Why? Because sometimes we'll hear of some dramatic conversions among certain kinds of people. We look at our own lives and we say, my life doesn't measure up to that. I must not be saved. I didn't have that kind of dramatic crisis experience. So maybe my salvation is inauthentic. And that's an incorrect deduction. God moves in mysterious ways. The wind blows as it pleases. And that means in every individual true believer's life, that moment of conversion is going to look different. And that's a beautiful thing. That testifies to the imminence of God and his condescension to each individual whom he has desired to save. Number four. Conversion foreshadows a way of life. Conversion foreshadows a way of life. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 explains that the Thessalonians turned to God from idols. And the way in which that verb is used there depicts a whole act. It was a decisive one-time event. It was a decisive event. This turning from and turning to is a pivotal moment. And, and that, that will be true about us as well. There will be that, that moment where there is a change. It might be a gradual U-turn. It might be a very sharp one. But there will be a U-turn. It will be pivotal. But that one-time pivotal moment is then followed by a life of smaller turns as regeneration continues to impact the believer's entire being. And where we see this is in some different terminology, not the same kind of usage of the term epistrepho, but different terminology. When we go through the scriptures and we read of the process of sanctification, it is this putting off, putting on. It is a life of continual turning from specific sins of which maybe we were unaware earlier, now there's conviction and now we turn from that as well and we turn towards the the antithetical corresponding virtue. But this conversion that we experience at at one pivotal moment is then brought forth in a life of constant putting off and putting on, constant turning from the the old to the new, and so in 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 one sense we can look at it this way: the the, the conversion that results immediately uh, from regeneration, this definitive turning, is found in a place like Colossians three verse nine, where Paul says, "Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self." Repentance, turning away, the old self is done away with, but then in the very next verse, in verse. 10, he goes on to say, you have put on the new self. There's the positive aspect, the aspect, you could say, of faith. That is definitive, a definitive turning. But when we look elsewhere in the New Testament, we find these smaller turns. Such as in Romans 13, verse 12a, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Let's turn from them. He's addressing believers. And the corresponding part is let us put on the armor of light. It is a turn away from and a turn to. James 1 verse 21, the first half says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. And in the second half, he goes on to say, the counterpart in humility, receive the word implanted. 1 Peter 2 verse 1, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 1 Peter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. What this conversion begins is a life of turning, a life of th- th- that's inaugurated by this. Pivotal pivotal turn away from idols, away from self, away from sin, away from Satan, away from the world to the living God. But that foreshadows what will be true of that person's life for the remainder of his life. A process of rooting out the remains, of getting rid of some of those remnants, those things that are still part of the flesh. You will find yourself in constant repentance and exercising faith more and more. I think it was Martin Luther who said the Christian life is a life of repentance. And he, in fact, sometimes a believer can undergo a, a fairly significant post-conversion turning after falling into some agrarious, egregious sin and turning back to the active pursuit of Christlikeness. It does happen. You, you do find Christians that will, for a time, engage in some kind of habitual practice and come to that pivotal moment, even as a believer, though a believer who's in, in a pattern of sin, and, and there will be this decisive moment. We see that in Peter as Luke, or as uh, Jesus says this about him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, once you have turned again, epistrepho, would strengthen your brothers. He's predicting the stumble of Peter and the decisive return again to holiness. And it does happen in Christian lives. And we could look at the church at Ephesus in, a few, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, where Jesus says to this church, repent, repent. And do the things you did at first. So some of these turnings, some will be small, some will be great, but it will be a pattern in the Christian life. Number five, conversion serves as an important test for assurance. The fifth essential quality to recognize is this, conversion serves as an important test for assurance. Assurance, not the only test, certainly. And when we get into January and the new year, we'll be talking a lot about assurance of salvation. Uh, Conversion is the, the first of many such tests. It is not to be used in isolation. There are many others, but it is one of the tests. And though caused unilaterally by God, by the means of regeneration, conversion is the experience of the believer. It is an experience. And because it is an experience, it enables us to use it as a test to determine whether we are in the faith. The one who is regenerated is the one who does turn. And so, consequently, it does provide an important test for assurance. And we come back to this reality. We cannot prove our regeneration in and of itself, but we do prove regeneration by looking at its effects, by studying the scriptures to say, what does regeneration produce? And by looking at the effects of regeneration, we can determine whether we indeed are born of God or not. And the first effect produced by regeneration is conversion, a turn from sin into God. Sixth, a sixth and final characteristic that we'll look at is this. Conversion can be counterfeited. Conversion can be counterfeited. In fact, we see the term conversion even used outside of the church. It's used by sociologists often to describe a transition that goes, where one goes from one set of religious beliefs or worldview to another. In fact, it's it's even used beyond the the realm of religion simply to refer to sometimes to some newfound excitement or interest in in something else. But the common denominator in these kinds of understandings of conversion is that it's always self-manufactured. Self-manufactured conversions inevitably lead to subsequent conversions away from Christianity to some other belief system. And this has been in the news quite frequently in recent times of some high-profile people converting away from Christianity. Now, it should not surprise us. It certainly saddens us. But it happens because the first conversion was self-made. And that self-made conversion Allows for a conversion to something else later on. And this is what the scripture calls apostasy. A falling away from, a total abandonment of the faith. And we see this reference in several places. We could look at 1 Timothy 1, 18-19. And the apostasy of Hymenaeus and Alexander, who shipwrecked their faith. It wasn't a real conversion in the first place. We could also look at 1 John 2, verse 19, where John describes it quite well. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. What John is pointing to there is the false conversion. A self-manufactured conversion. Some kind of transition. Some kind of difference in orientation that takes place. That associated these with this particular church to which John is referring to. His writing. They went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But not all false conversions do lead to apostasy. And this is important to note. Most false converts will remain in the church. Most false converts will not burn out and shipwreck their faith in some kind of public display. Some false converts will be disciplined out of the church if the church actually practices church discipline. But the reality of it is we must not be surprised that most false converts will remain in the church. It's the concept of the wheat and the tares. And... For those first century farmers, how can you distinguish between wheat and tares? Until the fruit is, is, is produced, until the grain is produced, until the very, very end, when the harvest is taken, you can't tell the difference between the wheat and the tares. They remain within. And, and these false converts... Remain within the church and they harm the church's life and its ministry by these kinds of things, by showing ambivalence and even opposition to sound doctrine. They're they're those who, they, they may not get out and protest, may not walk out, but they're the ones who are always the wet blanket on good theological discussions. Ah, we really don't need to talk about these things. Oh, there really isn't a difference. Who cares if. You know, we really don't understand these things. They they show ambivalence to sound doctrine. They, they impede the, the church's obedience to the Great Commission. They are those who are in the church but want the church focused on other things. We really don't need to be preaching the gospel. Let's let's go and do these other things. And these false converts take or attempt to take to di- divert the church's attention away from its Great Commission given to it by its Lord. These false converts are those who extend friendship to the world and to its ways slowly but surely trying to erase the divide that exists. These false converts will inevitably obscure the difference between the regenerate and the non-regenerate by professing Christ yet living like the world. One foot in the church, one foot in the world, one hand up for Christ, the next up for self-righteousness, obscuring the difference. Jesus taught a parable on this in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. And there's two kinds of soil in particular that show the reality, that teach us the reality of these false converts. He says the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. This is that that dramatic conversion that seems to be so emotional. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns was, among, was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Both of these are totally unprofitable, are totally useless. If you're a farmer, the only kind of, of crop that matters is the one that produces the harvest. These other soils, particularly... These that are mentioned, as, as I've mentioned them here, are the soil of the false converts. Joseph Aline said this, "The devil has made many counterfeits of conversion, and cheats one with this and another with that. He has such craft and artifice in his mystery of deceits that if it were even possible, he would deceive the very elect. Let me move to some implications as we close our time tonight. What are some practical implications? Let me give you just a couple. Number one, you must turn. I cannot command you to be regenerated because you can't do that. But I can command you to repent and believe. You must turn. And if you are here tonight, and as you examine yourself and you think back and there's no time in your life where you actually gave up the world, There is no time when you said Christ is greater, Christ is superior, Christ is more beautiful, I want him and not my sin. If that is not, if that doesn't describe you at some point in, in the past, whether it was yesterday Or 40 years ago, the command that is given by the authority of Scripture is that you must repent and believe. And you will be held accountable to that command. Have you turned? Have you turned from your idols? Not just in some superficial way where you just package them away somewhere deeper into your home or into your heart. But have you smashed them? Have you turned to Christ? Have you found him exceedingly glorious and worth more than anything that this world can offer? You must turn, Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 3, unless you are converted, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Acts 14, verse 15, we've read this already. Paul preaches to the pagans in Lystra and says, You must turn from these vain things to a living God. That leads to our second implication here is test yourself. Now we're going to get into the tests because you are responsible for your turn. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul says this test yourselves to see if you are in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? A turn from and a turn to experience is one of several important tests to assess the authenticity of your salvation. And so this is the big question Was I converted? Was I converted? Remember, conversion is the first effect of genuine regeneration. Was I converted? Can I point to that in my life somewhere? Maybe I don't know the exact day. Maybe I don't know the exact hour. Maybe the circumstances were drawn out. It wasn't a... a, 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 It didn't happen in in five minutes. Maybe it happened in five weeks. But there was a, a turning away from idols. A turning away from self and sin. I know that. I remember that. I remember the time in my life. Was I converted? Did I recognize the bankruptcy of everything that was outside of Christ? And did I... Behold, Christ's infinite value for me as the only one who can give me true life. You see, it is at this moment at conversion where we begin to take the concept of salvation and apply it to the personal pronouns. I and me, by me, for me, etc. Did I turn from sin? Did I turn to Christ? Number three, don't be surprised at Apostasy. Don't be surprised at apostasy. Satan counterfeits the very best of things, not the very worst. And he will counterfeit conversions left and right. And it's not that we go around automatically just denying every account of conversion that we hear. But friends, we must be careful. We must realize that it is easy to counterfeit a conversion. And time is needed, and trials are needed, testings are needed for there to be the fruit of this true transformation of life. Paul Washer said this, when will we realize that one of the greatest mission fields in the West is the pews of our churches every Sunday morning? And that behooves you to preach the gospel to Christians Don't just assume that those who tell you they were born again or those who made a decision, don't just assume that they're saved and walk away. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to those who profess Christ. Number four, aim for conversions, not decisions. Aim for conversions, not decisions. And we'll end with this thought. Let me read from John Chisholm. When he says this, evangelism is not a making of proselytes. It is not persuading people to make a decision. It is not proving that God exists or making a good case for the truth of Christianity. It is not inviting someone to a meeting. It is not exposing the contemporary dilemma or arousing interest in Christianity. It is not wearing a badge saying Jesus saves. Some of those things are right and good in their place. But none of them should be confused with evangelism. To evangelize is to declare on the authority of God what he has done to save sinners, to warn men of their lost condition, and to direct them to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true evangelism. So as you engage in the world around you, as you engage in conversations with your closest friends and family... You're not just looking to hear some prayer. You are bringing with all the authority of Jesus the command to repent and to believe. And your heart's objective, your greatest goal in prayer is that there would be conversion because if there is conversion, that means regeneration has taken place. Now in all of this said, we will take a break from this study for several weeks And it's appropriate that we stop at this topic of conversion because I want to leave you with this thought. Are you converted? Are you converted? If you can't answer that question, that should trouble you to such a degree that you don't sleep. Are you converted? Have you shown the effect of regeneration in your life? There are some here, even tonight, I'm sure, who know they're not, but they're just living a lie. Understand that God has appointed a day and He will judge and you will not escape. There are some here tonight who are unsure. Maybe they're deceived. Maybe someone has deceived them. It's not a bad thing to feel a lack of assurance. In fact, it's a very good thing in that situation. Because it means the warning light is on the dashboard. And you need to find out what's going on. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's misunderstanding something or maybe you are not saved. Again, you should not sleep if that is your state. Your life can be over in a minute, and you will face eternity, and you will have no option, no second chance. And then there are those who are truly saved, those who are truly regenerate. And you struggle with assurance because you know that you still don't measure up. Christ is so great and glorious. And you are not. But you love him. And if there's one person that you wish you could see, it would be him. And if there's one person you wish you could be with, it would be him. And if there is one thing that you wish could happen to you, it would be the removal of that sin. And nothing would please you more. I want to take you back to your conversion. I want to take you back to that time that first effect of regeneration, you turned. You turned from sin, from idols, to living and true God. And he is sending his son to rescue you from the wrath to come. Live in that assurance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we are Confronted with this teaching, we're thankful again for your word, which is clear. We're thankful for your word, which shines light into our lives, dispels the darkness, shows things the way they really are. And there are some here tonight who, when the light of your word is shone upon them, when it shines, it reveals some pretty frightening things, I pray You would not allow them peace, not one moment, that You, as a loving Father, would torment them until they turn, that You would open their eyes to their true state and their fate. I also pray for those who are Yours, who have experienced regeneration, but don't live in the assurance and don't know what they have received. I pray that as your, your word shines light into their lives, that light would reveal the wonderful treasures, 10,000 charms and more, and that they would grow in increasing joy in light of what they see. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen.